Well, if you want to turn with me to John chapter 8, we're going to jump back into our series called Fully Alive. Uh, in John, uh, Christ himself says that he's come to give us life and to give it to the full or abundantly. And so uh, we're, um, we've actually had a uh, summer off from John. And so if you're new here with us, uh, we've, not, um, we've not been here in about three months. And so uh, we are glad you're here. And so John chapter 8 um, in your Bibles, uh, as I do each week, uh, I would just ask if you'd just bow once again as we pray, okay? Father, we uh, will come to your word believing that it's true. In this section of John, um, you know more even more than we do how tense it really was. And Lord, the dialogue that we read here um, is... Um, there's just a lot of pieces there. And so I pray that you would help us, help me to make it very simple. God, I pray that you would make it simple in each of our hearts, Lord, to truly be able to see exactly what it is that you would have us see today. So would you give us belief? Would you help us to understand it, to apply it to our life? Would you speak through weakness? And uh, God, would you use it, God, to unveil in our life either things that we need to be doing or maybe things we need to stop doing? who we need to trust, and who we need to stop trusting. And so we look to you, the light of the world, to give us light now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, several months ago, I'm at the gym, uh, and I'm on one of those machines of affliction, is, is, is what I call it. And in front of me, there's a guy on a treadmill, okay? And just to be totally honest with you, he's really working hard, and so praise God. N- not the most agile, uh, but he's working hard, and he's He's in front of me, and, um, and he's all wired up. He's got his phone in his hand, and um, so he's got his earbuds, and, and, uh, and, and, and he's running away, and, and, uh, and all of a sudden, he drops his phone, right? Well, the phone uh, then pulls the earbuds out of his ear. They hit the treadmill, and they go flying back, and, and, um, and so he chooses, instead of hitting that bright, beautiful button that says stop, he, he, he wants to just jump off of it, Right? And he does, and he made it. And I was like, ooh, this is exciting. And, and to be totally honest with you, like for the rest of us in the gym, I mean, the compassion of Christ should have led us to hit stop and go over and say, really, let's just hit the stop button. But, you know, that's like two minutes of gold when you're on one of those machines. It's just a, like a real distraction. And so, so I'm watching, because now his treadmill is speeding, and he's off of it, right? He goes over, and he picks his phone up, and his earbuds, and he regroups, and then he, and then he begins that saga of re-entering a moving treadmill that all of us have seen in our life, and, and it really was pretty comical, because he kind of looks at it, and you can tell he's thinking, okay, what's my strategy? And he goes, this is my strategy. And so he, so he walks down the one side, right? And so it's, it's going right here, and, 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 he, and he's holding on, and he's with his right foot, he's thinking, I'm going to put it down and we'll start that way, right? And so he, he like does this about three or four times and we're all watching. And we're like, this is so good. And for some reason, he, he just couldn't develop enough courage to really buy into that. And so he just never did it. And so he thought, well, it must be the wrong foot. So he comes to the other side like this and he's putting his left foot down and it's doing this number. And, and I, I mean, I'm just thanking the Lord during, during all of this. And, and, and then he goes... This is what I'm going to do. You can just see it. So he straddles the thing, and he picks himself up, and he starts running in the air, right? And then lowers himself down on the treadmill. He stumbles for a little, and all of a sudden, he made it, though. There was complete success. And and, uh, 
So we were all really happy for him. Exactly. That wasn't me, by the way. I promise. Okay. So you say, what does that have to do with this? Um, Not a lot, but after three months away from John, uh, what I want to try to do is to get us back up and running on this treadmill. Okay. No one booed me at eight for that. (laughs) All right, look. So the author, John, okay, he's one of Jesus' core disciples. And he's observed him. He's been an eyewitness to his life and his teaching and his miracles, his death and his resurrection. Fifty years later, he chooses to record. But what he tells us is that he doesn't record everything that he saw. Instead, what he chooses to do is to select very specific stories and specific miracles and specific teachings in order to lead us, his readers, to a very specific conclusion. And that conclusion, he tells us exactly what it is. It's in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. John says this, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his own disciples, which are not written in his book, but These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So this is what he wants. Everything in here is directed to trying to convince us, his readers, that Jesus is the promised one, the ultimate rescuer, that he is the Son of God, he's the Messiah, and that in believing that, that we find that that is the key that literally turns life on from darkness to light, from death to life, from dullness to fullness. It's believing in Jesus. When we get to John chapter 8, which is where we're at, it's important to know that John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 are actually the same setting. There's only about three days in those two chapters. And when you get to John chapter 7, verse 37, when it says, and on the last day, from that verse all the way through the end of John chapter 8, it's the same day. Okay? So in John chapter 7, we actually looked at what happened in the morning here in John chapter 8, starting in verse 12, at what's happened at night on that same day. But you need to understand that things are really, really tense. Why, why are they tense? Well, first of all, the whole city is packed. People and families have flooded into Jerusalem for something called the Feast of Booths. Booths was a word for tents. And what they were doing is celebrating God's provision when the people, uh, when their forefathers had basically wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and how God provided for them all that they needed During that time, God told them one time a year, I want you to come back for a full week, live in Jerusalem for a week in tents. So everyone's camping for a week all together in a big city, tons of people. And what they're doing there is celebrating and remembering God's provision to their forefathers. So when you get to John chapter seven and chapter eight, you have to understand that we're only six months now away from the cross. So Jesus is incredibly intentional right now with everything that he's doing. And John is very intentional in what he is recording. Only the most important things are making this list at this point in time. The people are very intrigued. And the Pharisees, who are sort of like the leaders of Israel in in terms of faith and religion, is that they want to kill Jesus. And so on the very last day, 
we pick up in verse 12. It says, once again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And so Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the real testimony of two people is true. Well, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus said, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. It says that he spoke these things as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Well, then he keeps going and he says, and so he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die. In your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. And he said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, why is that important? Not only is it good news, but it's important because he's illustrating the very purpose of why he's putting this story in the text. His whole goal, if you remember, was to show us that Jesus is the Christ so that we would believe that. And in believing, we would have life in his name. And so this is really good news because what he's saying is in the midst of all of this chaos and tension between Jesus and the Pharisees, people are believing and getting saved. They're forgiven. This is a moment literally for these people of conversion where they're literally going from darkness to light. It's an absolute miracle what takes place at that moment. And what we want you to know is that we want this for you. And it can happen for you today. You see, you may start listening to this sermon as an unbeliever. Maybe uncertain about Jesus' claims. Feeling that maybe you're not opposed to it. You're just learning about it. 
What we want you to know is that by the end, you may just believe in Jesus Christ and be forgiven of all of your sins. It happened for them. And we want you to know that it can happen for you too. And so what I want to show you in all these verses, which is pretty complex. I don't know how many times I read this text through to try to understand exactly what's going on here. But his goal was to teach us things about Jesus. And so I want to just show you two things as we prepare to take this Lord's Supper. Two things that are true about Jesus. That if you believe them, they will change your life. The first is that Jesus is the light of the world. He's the light of the world. This is exactly what he says in verse 12. I am the light of the world. Now, if you and I were on one of these shows where they're dropped into the wilderness and all of a sudden we have to create among all of us sort of a rescue plan or a survival plan. The fact is, is if we all gathered together and we made a short list of the things that we need to make sure that we secure first, water it would be near the top, if not the top. It would also probably include food, shelter, and then some sort of heat, fire, light, something like that. Those four things is really what we'd look for. Well, the same was true for the people of Israel as they were walking through the wilderness for four years. They didn't have flashlights when they left Egypt. There was no flashlights. There was fire. Well, when fire went out, they had no fire. They had no light. So they're in the middle of a wilderness. And they have no means to find clean drinking water for two million people. And they have no light. But when you get to the, what we see here is, is that we're told in God's word is that God is the one who provided these needs for his people. And so now all these hundreds of years later, when they've all gathered to come for the Feast of Booths to commemorate what God did in providing for them light and water. It shouldn't surprise us that in the mornings, every morning for a week, they had a ceremony where they poured water on the altar to commemorate God's generosity and provision of water in the wilderness. And it also shouldn't surprise us that in the evening, they would light a bunch of candles to commemorate God's provision of fire and light to the people. And this is exactly what's happening here. And so just as we looked at in John chapter 7, verse 37, where they're about to pour water on the altar, and all of a sudden Jesus stands up in front of everyone, and he says, I just want you to know something. He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Why? Because I'm the water of life. Same thing he's going to do with light. And this is what happens in verse 12. I can see them all gathered together in a public place. They're lighting these candelabras. And all of a sudden Jesus stands up and he goes, guys, you realize that everything you're celebrating is really about me. And it all points to me that I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What's he's really saying there? What he's saying is, guys, you're walking through an active minefield in the dead of night without a light. And the prophet Isaiah, who you love and read about all the time, promised that those walking in darkness would see a great light. I'm that light. I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. So you have two options. Darkness, me. That's it. If you want light in your life, in your heart, in your family, in your marriage, you have to come to me. You have to follow me. This is what Jesus is saying. What an amazing claim. And 
as is, you would expect, the Pharisees who already wanted to kill him, they, they get angry. What they do is they object. They say, the law says you have to have two witnesses. And so you're witnessing to yourself. And so what you're saying isn't true. So it looks like a detour on the road. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm on a road trip, like, I pretty much know how long it's supposed to take. And I really like to get there in about that time. Okay? And so when, when, when some states DOT, they put up a detour, for me, it's an opportunity to sigh and roll my eyes. Right? It's, a, it's a great disappointment because it's going to take me out of the way that I really want to go. And what's interesting is even though they give him a detour, and it really is a detour because if you notice, he never comes back and talks about light. I mean, even I wish verse 13 was like, and so let's talk about the good things that light brings to our life. That's what I do also. He just says it, and all of a sudden they object, and now all of a sudden he's chasing their objection like a detour, and you think, why would he do this? Just go back. And the reason he doesn't go back is because by taking the detour, he's going to actually prove his starting point that he's the light of the world. And what he's going to do, and how he does it, is he wants to show us the relationship between he and the father. In other words, he's going to say this. I am the light of the world because I'm the son of God. You see, you want two witnesses. All right, I'll be one. My father will be the other. And I came from the father and I'm going back to the father and everything I say and do is on the authority of the father. So they respond, as you would if you didn't like him, well, who's, who's your father? And he says, notice what he says, if you knew me, you would know my father. What does that mean? What it means is he's saying that my father and I are so united that to love and know one is to know and love the other. What a claim. Now, Don't forget what is happening here, right? They're at a feast of booths that is commemorating God's provision of two very important things, light and water, to the people of Israel. But you have to ask the question, is there any tie-in to how that even began? And there is. There was a guy, his name is Moses. And Moses is out in a dark wilderness, and all of a sudden he sees a light, You say, no, it wasn't a light, it was fire. Well, that's true. But back then, they didn't have Duracell, right? If you had light, you had fire. That's what light was. You lit up your room with fire. And notice, in fact, if you read the story, it actually says that the bush didn't burn. So really, what he's doing is he's portraying a provision of light in the darkness for the first person who's going to lead the whole nation of Israel out back into that wilderness, And so he says, Moses, you need to take your shoes off because the place where you're at is really holy because God is here. So Moses takes his shoes off and all of a sudden he looks up and he goes, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to lead my people Israel out of Egypt. You're going to come through this wilderness and I'm going to bring you to the promised land. And Moses has several questions. One of them is, well, who are you? What's your name? When I get back to the people, what do I tell them? And this is what he says. Tell the people, I am has sent me to you. This is my name forever. In other words, what he's saying is this. 
The next time you find people on this earth or a person on this earth walking around saying stuff like I am, you can know that one, they're claiming to be God or two, they're claiming to be God because they are God. And what you find in John is a bunch of I am statements, right? Where he says, I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Each one of these, what he's claiming is, I'm the God that showed up to Moses at the very beginning. I am the I am. And what's interesting is if you look at verse 24 and verse 28 in our text, this is what he says. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And then in verse 28, it says, and when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And you know what's interesting? In both of those two sentences, the pronoun he is not in Greek. It's not in the original. It's added in our English translations for sentence structure. Literally what he's saying there is, unless you believe I am, meaning I'm the I am. I'm the God of all creation. You will die in your sins. And so what is Jesus really saying here when he says, I am the light of the world? Well, what he's saying is, I am the son of God. I am the promised one from the garden. I am the voice that when we looked upon darkness at creation, I'm the one who said, let there be light. And there was light. It starts with me. I was the one in the bush talking to Moses. I am the promised one of Isaiah's prophecy that says a light will come into the darkness. And so it's, it's, as you can imagine, what he's also saying is all these candles that you keep lighting every night this week, they all point to me. I'm the fulfillment of why you're in Jerusalem right now. It's an amazing thing. And even John, 50 years later, he's surprised and even comments in verse 20 that no one sought to arrest him. He's like, yeah, they probably should have done it right then. You know? He says, but his hour had not yet come. The sovereign will of God, his time had not yet come. Now, friends, what I want you to see is this. Throughout scripture, God always makes his claims in order to extend an invitation. He never just makes a claim just to make a claim. This is the most amazing thing about God. He could have come and said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You're all sinning. You're all going to hell. Have a good day and walks away. The story doesn't have to end with good news for us in order for the story to be true. And yet God, when he comes and he says, I am the light of the world, it also comes with a gift, an invitation. He says, and if you will follow me, then you don't have to walk in darkness anymore because you're going to be able to enjoy the light of life. What an amazing gift. And because that's true and the invitation is to follow him, then let's run to Jesus' light and follow him. You see, every one of us in this room and in this world, we all go through dark seasons of life where it just seems like the path before us is dimly lit. This fallen world that we live in is sort of like a pitch black room that contains both traps and treasures. Most of you with kids know, I know we did. We were boys, so we had a bunch of matchbox cars. When I walked down at night and I just knew the layout of the room, I always felt like I never had to turn on the light because I knew where everything was. 
All of a sudden you start stepping on those matchbox cars and you really start looking for light a little bit more urgently. And this is what he's saying. He goes, the world in which we live, there's literally traps and treasures all over the place. And unless you have light, you can't discern the difference. You find yourself running into traps and fleeing treasures. He says, I have way too much that I want to be able to provide for you. And so I think what he's saying is, guys, you got to stop running and look to Jesus who can light up your room. You see, the world in which we live boasts of many lights. The world boasts of the light of religion, the light of philosophy, and the light of self-expression, and the light of art, and the light of pleasure, and leisure, and education. But have you ever noticed that every single one of these so-called lights leaves us in the dark when our marriage is strained? Or when our heart is unexplainably depressed? Or when our city is wrecked by a hurricane? Or when... The doctor's diagnosis is bleak or when we bury a loved one. You see, the thing about religion and philosophy and pleasure and leisure and education is that none of them are a source of light in itself. They're only a reflection of where light can come. And there's only one light and it's Jesus. And what that means is that philosophy and art and education and music and every other form that we say, oh, that brightens our light. They only brighten our life to the extent that they reflect the one true light. And that's Jesus. That's why education apart from Jesus is, 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 is ridiculous. Why math works is because God made the world. You take God out, who cares about math? He's the light of all of these things. He says that he's the light and whoever follows him will enjoy the light of life. So we have to ask the question, what does it mean then to follow him? You know, we follow sports teams and we follow our parents and we follow people on social media and following Jesus is unlike any of those things. If I really had to boil down and think about what are the ways that Jesus says, this is what it means to follow me. It's really four. Okay. And unfortunately, I didn't put these on the board, but number one is I think what it means to follow him is to trust his accomplishments and not ours. Instead of trusting in my good works, I'm trusting in his. I think the second thing, what it means is that we unashamedly join ourselves to him in spite of potential social backlash. The world does not love Jesus. To follow him doesn't mean walking at such a distance that you don't receive any of that backlash. I think the third thing it means is that you rely upon his word to direct your life, which means that you read it. What does it really say about us as the people of God for us to believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God and for us not to read it? You ever thought about that? This is the perfect book of life and freedom. And believers, by and large, don't read it. It's a remarkable thing. And I think the fourth thing it means is that we reflect his light so that other people can follow Jesus and reflect his light to other people. This is how Jesus said it. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. 
And so this is his plan, that he's the light of the world. He wants to give you light. The second thing that, he, that, that we see here about Jesus is this, and it's, it gets harsh, is Jesus is the dividing line for eternity. He is the line of division for all eternity. He says in verse 21, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. And when Jesus says he's going away, what he means is he's going to die and then rise once again. And then he's going to go to his father in heaven. And then when Jesus tells the Pharisees that they're going to die in their sin and they'll be unable to follow him where he goes, what he's saying is this. Guys, I realize that you think you have a front row seat in heaven because of your works. But as it stands, you don't even have a back row seat. You're not going to go to heaven currently. And the reason is because you're not believing in me and therefore you're still condemned in your sin. Now, you've got to ask the question, why would Jesus say these things this way? I mean, doesn't it look like Jesus is intentionally digging his own grave? And the reason it looks like that is because Jesus is intentionally digging his own grave. He could have traveled to the Bahamas and just hung out on a beach. He could have walked there, right? He's Jesus. And yet he deliberately made decisions and said things in order to bring people to the place to where he would hang on a cross. Because if he didn't, we couldn't be saved. But the other reason I think he said these things is because he knew that these people who were created in his image, even though they hated him, he loved them and he did not want them to be condemned forever. You see, John chapter three, verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. You see, friends, in our sin, we already stand condemned. Most of us, we think of a court system as a jury of our peers. And we think, well, that's probably how it's going to be. I just have to be better than our peers. That's just not how it works. The perfect judge who sees everything says, if you sin one time, court has already been called and already been dismissed for you. The gavel has already dropped. The verdict has already been said. This person is guilty. Nobody's watching your good works. The judge is no longer watching because he's already seen you fall short of his glory. And this is where they're at. Every one of them, he says, unless you believe that I am him, you will die in your sins. They're trusting in something other than Jesus. And so, but what you have to see though is in that sentence, there's hope because he's saying, if you do believe in me, you won't die in your sins. You see, when we begin to believe in Jesus Christ, What takes place is God calls court back into session. And there all of a sudden he bestows upon us the righteousness of Jesus. He forgives us of all of our sin. And then he publicly declares with his mouth in his own courtroom, this person is innocent forever. And then he adopts us into his family. This is available to you. And the people that we read about in verse 30 who believed in him, this is what happened. Court was called again and God declared them innocent and justified. You would think that all mankind would flock to Jesus, but amazingly, that's not the case. For Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 19, the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. It's remarkable to me that that we would choose our darkness. And this is, they're talking to the light of the world. 
And they cannot believe, they cannot see. So Jesus says to them this. He's totally aware of their unbelief, their resistance in their heart toward him. And he says, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. What's he saying there? What he's saying is that you're going to lift me up on a cross and crucify me, but I will rise from the dead and I'll shine forever. And the day will come when you will know this, for you will stand before me in judgment. You will know. You see, friends, like a tight wire that's made out of a razor blade, the edge of Jesus' claims is so sharp and thin that you cannot stand on it without taking a side. There is no neutrality in the world towards Jesus. You are either with him or against him. You say, well, I don't feel against him. Jesus says you're already condemned. You've already been declared guilty. But for every single one of us who says, you know what? I'm not going to trust in myself anymore. I'm going to yield to his provision in Jesus that we'll be forgiven. And so my plea is let's believe in Jesus and be forgiven of our sin. You can do that today. If you've never trusted Christ, we're about to take the Lord's Supper. It's only for people who have trusted him. And you can pray right now to God where you're at and say, God, I believe. I believe that Jesus is the Christ who died and rose again. I believe I'm a sinner and I ask you in my life, would you forgive me and make me righteous? And the Bible says he will do that. See, Isaiah 50, 10 says, let him who walks in darkness and has no light, trust in the name of the Lord. Trust in the name of the Lord. Now, for those of us who have believed in Jesus, God has really given us a very unique way to remember our rescue and to profess our allegiance to Jesus Christ, and it's called the Lord's Supper. So for the guys that will be serving us, if you want to go ahead and stand up and make your way to the back of the room to prepare for that. The supper that you see is, consists of a cup and bread. The bread is symbolic of the body of Jesus that was broken, and the cup is symbolic of the blood of Jesus that was shed for our sin. Jesus told us to take this in order to remember what he's done, and to proclaim what he's done, and that we're believing in that, listen, only after we examine our heart and ask him to forgive us of any known sin. And so as the guys are serving us here this morning, I want to ask you to take these moments while they're being passed to ask God and to search your heart. Say, God, would you search my heart, test me, see if there's any sin in me, and confess your sin. But if you've not trusted Christ yet, we would simply ask that you let these things pass for to take them is to treasure that. So if you would, let's bow and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we confess you as our Lord. And as a church family, we count it a privilege not only to believe and trust that you are the light of the world, but to place all of our trust and all of our hope and all of our allegiance in you. So God, I pray that you would use this time to examine our hearts. Would you forgive us of all sin? We love you and thank you for what you made available to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.